Have you ever wondered what it's like for other people to go through a life event? Is it the same for them? Is it different? And how? My name is Dr. Nikkel Rogers-Webb. I'm a psychologist. I'm doing a podcast with my mom, Dr. Elsa Rogers, Dean of General Studies. And we're going to be talking to different people about what it's like to go through a single life event at the same time. This esteemed guest is our first guest um, and the first person I asked to join us on our podcast um, because we are kind of starting during a time where things have gotten weird and rough. And so I thought of this person because I know she is a really dedicated educator, but then also a parent. So she gets it from both sides and is probably feeling the pain um, from both sides. So um, our guest's name is Natalie House. She and I have been friends since, oh, sixth grade, I believe. It's been a long time. Um, And so she is a middle school math teacher out in South Carolina, and she has um, a family of her own, two boys. And so, yeah, Natalie, just um, tell our audience a little bit more about, about you. Um, you said a lot right now. I feel like all I am is an educator that I'm devoting so much time to it, sadly, and taking that away from my family. Um, I'm a mom of two boys and I've been married for, I should know this answer, 19 years will be 19, no, 18 years this summer. Um, and my husband is working from home with me right now. Um, I, enjoy exercising. I do that a lot. And may enjoy adult beverages in the evening. (laughs) (laughs) Got to do what you got to do, right? Yes, absolutely. Um, And so kind of as we were talking through what we were going to do for this um, episode of the podcast, we sent, um, you know, Natalie some questions. And then um, since she is a childhood friend of mine, of course, my mom knows her quite well yes. as well. Um, so um, we'll probably kind of work our way through some of the topics that we thought would be interesting. But then also, I just kind of, I mean, I think we were really lucky and got to see each other in the summer of 2019 when you were down in my neck of the woods. But before that, I feel like it had been at least 20 years. Um, the last time I saw you before that, I went to go visit you freshman year, maybe when you were at Sewanee. Okay. Wait, I saw you right before you got married. You did? <laughs> yes. You had a bridal shower. So that was okay. after college. Yes. Okay, so that was 2002. Okay. So not quite 20 years, but pretty darn close. <laughs> wow. Yes. Um, so, but it was really neat because, um, Natalie is one of those people you just kind of pick up with, at least in my experience. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, well, I've been reconnecting with a few people from my past, as I would say, here and there as I can. And it feels like that with everyone. Oh, good. There's something about people who knew you when, right? Yes. Yeah, I think so. So the kids are 12 and how old, Natalie? 12 and six. Oh, wow. They must, you must be pretty busy. Yes, very busy. How do you manage that, though, with, um, with teaching, especially now that you're home? Um, not easily. Fortunately, my 12-year-old is very independent and is a good student. Mm-hmm. My yeah. six-year-old needs a lot more help. Ah, 
Yes, yes. So I suppose, Nikhil, that, that applies to you as well. Yeah, because um, mine are, um, gosh, now I'm blanking, seven and four. So they're, you know, with the youngest, he, he doesn't need the actual instruction, but he is more likely to get bored and in trouble if we are not <laughs> providing some sort of instruction. Mm -hmm. So that's been really kind of a challenge, although sometimes I can get her to kind of go over basic reading with him because she feels very proud to know something. Ah. Oh, yeah, that's sweet. Yeah. yeah. I suppose that's what you call the, um, the oldest child syndrome. We always feel kind of responsible, although the little ones don't always appreciate that. <laughs> My oldest just tries to parent and it gets very frustrating. So what does that look like when he does that? Because I know my oldest does that as well. And sometimes I am parenting and I'm like, hello, hello. Yeah, <laughs> I got it. Exactly. We are the parent. We will discipline him. You need a brother relationship, mm -hmm. not a parent relationship. Yes, yes. But did you get the impression, though, that sometimes the older one or the, old, the older of the two in your cases, though, feel as though somehow they can better relate to the younger ones than... And you as parents? No, not at all. Not with mine. <laughs> <laughs> um, I don't know that they're there quite yet. I mean, like confession time, like when my brother and I were middle school, high school, and mom, you and dad would do something that we perceived as weird or crazy, we would be able to then, like, because we were past sibling rivalry, mm -hmm. we'd be able to kind of be like, oh my gosh, can you believe <laughs> and so that helps, you know, but I think that mine are still kind mm -hmm. of young and more interested in tattling on each other. Ah. But mine still tattle. Oh, they don't grow out of that by the time they're 12, Natalie? No, I'm so sorry. Oh. <laughs> God. No, no, no. I, I suppose the little one has to be 12 too. 12 and uh, what, 18 at that time? Yeah, that'll, if my numbers are yep, that's what it'll be. Yeah. Great. Yeah, yeah. But, but as a teacher uh, in the face-to-face -face classroom, Natalie, what are some of the challenges that you face that you think that maybe parents ought to be aware of? Um, what kinds of challenges are you describing? I mean, in terms of behavior or even in terms of maybe some of the um, developmental type things that parents may not necessarily be aware of. Okay. Um, fortunately for me, I teach in a magnet program. So uh -huh. students must apply to our program and get approved to be in it. Um, uh -huh. We only take 100 students per grade level. Oh. Um, so behavior is not a typical issue that I deal with, other than minor little class clown things. But um Parents do think because their child got into the program that their children are automatically super smart. And it's right. really oh. hard to tell a parent that, you know, maybe a B is their child's best. They may not be an A student. Mm -hmm. yeah. 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 So they're mixing it up with like giftedness. Yes. Okay. Are there parents well, who... They'll focus on gymnastics and dance and take their kids out of school for that, which is great. And if that's your family's priority, I am not here to judge, but don't expect 
me to bend over backwards to ensure your child has an A, you know, you might need to balance out that activity with their grade. You make the point about um, a child needing an A. I'm surprised, though, because I encounter that a lot at the university level, where students will come into the classroom and say something, like, well, um, I, um, I need to get an A in this class, or I need to get a B in this class. It's not the parents saying that, no, but the student who is saying, I need to get an A. I've always been an A student, and somehow if they don't get an A, it's my fault. Do you have the same kind of reaction from parents when their child doesn't get an A? Yes, all the time. Oh, how do you deal with that? I, I give them what they get. I suggest resources to help them. Mm-hmm. I will show them A work versus what their child has turned in. Oh, that's good. Yes, yes. And what do they say? I'm just curious. <laughs> Maybe I can try that. Um, sometimes they'll get it and other times they'll just go home and you know, try to do the work for their child or something oh, like wow. that, which won't work on a test or a quiz, but... For other assignments, mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. Funny, I was just um, grading a paper um, from a student who definitely is struggling with the English language. And he sent me a paper that's perfect. <laughs> and, and it's perfect. Yeah. So because, because it's a dis- discussion board kind of thing, what I did is I could not post... I couldn't tell him as I was communicating with him and the class as a whole that, hey, you copied. So I just sent him a private email saying, hey, listen, you need to be aware of this so that I don't want to, I don't want to embarrass him then to say, no, you copied and therefore. So I, and I, and I suppose I'm, I'm comparing that to parents doing the work for their children and thinking that they're learning. Well, actually, let me ask you about that specifically, because I mean, mom, for you, you know, especially if you were in an online learning platform anyway, that's something Mm -hmm. that, you know, you encounter. And I know when I was teaching online, I I could see that as well, where it was like, I know how you write and you speak. This is not you. But Natalie, you've gone from face-to-face to purely online. How much are you having to kind of navigate and deal with the idea that there might be excessive parent intervention in what the kiddos are doing. I have totally relinquished worrying about that. Um, Fortunately, because our standardized test has been canceled for this year, that has always been my biggest concern with allowing them to use calculators or allowing them to use notes on test, um, that that would hold them back from doing well in the standardized test. It bothers me a little bit, but at the same time, if their parent is helping them mm-hmm. and that's helping them learn the information a little bit better, I just can't worry about that. Yeah, but 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 I think, though, that there's a difference between helping the, p- the children to learn and doing the work for the child. And sometimes it's, it's difficult, especially when you are at a distance, to determine what exactly is happening. Fortunately for me with math, it's so different than when parents were in school that Mm -hmm. I can tell if the work doesn't match how I taught it. And Uh, most parents just say, oh, I can't do this math. It's too hard. So I guess, you know, we talked a lot about what your experience is, you know, currently in the classroom. But I wonder, 
Can you tell us more about how you decided to get into education as a profession and specifically how you chose math? I always wanted to be a teacher. I don't know if it's that I wasn't exposed to a lot of different careers growing up, so I didn't know much. I was a good student. I worked well in school. That's what I excelled at. So, And that's what I find with a lot of other teachers. They're in that same boat. Um, I started off actually majoring in chemistry. Wow. Yeah, that didn't last past orientation. <laughs> so I changed to chemistry education. And at some point I was like, this is not it. Um, so I switched to elementary education. And in my student teaching two weeks in, I hated it. I was done. Um, you know, it's a few months before graduation. And I called my dad and I said, I'm changing my major. He's like, no, you're not. <laughs> you graduate. So they found me a placement and I started my classroom. And <laughs> it just went from there. I loved it. I loved the personalities of the kids at the middle school level. And I'm a huge rule follower. And in math, there are just so many rules and it's black and white. And it just matches my personality. Oh, makes sense. I never thought of it that way. You know, as a math, math having so many rules and therefore it may suit a, a personality that fits into that category. Yes. Hmm. Well, and I think that's also something that many of us wouldn't, I mean, I'm speaking for myself, not, not something that I would automatically gravitate toward because it is challenging. No. Um, I would imagine not only to learn it for a lot of people, um, but to teach it, to know it well enough to teach. Yeah. I, I learn new stuff every day teaching it, though. I make connections of simple topics every single day while teaching. Wow. Can you give us an example? Oh, gosh. Um, none off the top of my head right now, sadly. Mm -hmm. But just even simple things, maybe while teaching fractions, it seems like just the other day I made a connection. I was like, oh my gosh, how have I never seen something so simple and how it's connected and relates? Okay. All right. So you make connections between what you're teaching in class and real life. And that makes a whole lot of sense. I am, I, I, I'm, I'm going to maybe approach this topic from the university level where uh, we have some math teachers and what they did is they, they thought everything theoretically. And what we found is that students were not grasping it. So we had a big old workshop. And in the workshop, we said, OK, if you are teaching graphs or you're teaching something as simple interest, how can you make that real for the students? So they started talking about, OK, you want to buy a house and you have X number of dollars. And somehow it seemed to click for students because where I work, the students are mainly adults or let's say they're grown-ups they're not the regular right of passive students so therefore they already have homes and many of them are renting apartments and those things and what I have found is by showing them that math is actually um, it's actually applicable to your real life situation it makes a difference so you are doing more or less the same thing but at a lower level yes and sadly math is one of those things that it's okay to not be good at you know, people say, oh, I'm not a math person. And I just mm -hmm. attended an online webinar about that, how, you know, we're all able to understand and grasp math. We just have to maybe learn it a little bit differently or construct that knowledge 
And it just frustrates me when parents are like, well, I'm not a math person, so they're not either. But they can become a math person. You know, that's a really, really good point because I, I actually often say that about myself. Yeah. Um, but then I ended up having to take advanced math um, to get my degree. And I now use it all the time um, in my testing. And I have to do a statistical analysis and say, well, maybe we run it this way instead of that way. And so you're really right that when I stopped giving myself the message of, oh, I'm just not a math person um, and, and found professors and teachers who, who taught it from a perspective that clicked, it worked. Well, I, can, I have a different experience though in that having learned math in Trinidad where there was one fixed way. I remember I'm much older than you guys. So we didn't have all this, you know, I hate to say it, but the touchy-feely things where you actually reach the students where they are. This was the rule and this is how you did math. And I never was able to get math, but I had to do it for my undergraduate degree. So at the, at the time I had to take these math courses I was dating Nikhil, your dad. And oh, he, did and dad he, do your homework? No, 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 no. <laughs> he will never do my homework, but guess what he did? He actually taught me to look at certain things and say, okay, this question is actually asking that. And I actually learned how to study for the exams. I did math, I did statistics, and guess what? I passed them, but sadly... The knowledge that I gained for those two or three months that I was studying, they simply slipped through my brain soon after I was finished. <laughs> I know I'm ashamed of it, but that's common though, because there are things that even when I started teaching, I had totally forgotten from middle school math. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It's just like I tell the kids, it's like a sport; you have to practice it. Yeah, and if you don't, you're not going to learn it. And when you don't use it, you'll forget it. That's true. That's true. Yeah. That's a really good point, which I'm sure is what freaks parents out because maybe they did learn it, but then Mm -hmm. they're coming back at it 20 plus years later and going, oh my gosh. Yeah. Yeah. Like, what is this? And then there's a different way to do it. Like, I mean, my kiddo's in the second grade and they're talking about base 10 and I'm like, what about carrying the one? Like, can we, can we go back? Oh. I create a lot of videos that I put on my webpage for my parents and my students to use at home, which has oh. been very helpful. Oh, that is really neat. Cause I think that's the other thing that like, Natalie, you and I come from really the last generation to have a chunk of our education where there were no online resources, like no online anything. Um, And so I think that sometimes the default is not, hey, does the teacher have a webpage or Khan Academy or, you know, like all of these resources. It's Mm -hmm. just, I don't know how to do that. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. So do you think that there's more of an advantage now then for people to learn than there was when I was growing up and certainly when you were growing up as well? Um, Sadly, I find that the technology takes away sometimes from the learning. Mm -hmm. There are more and more resources, Mm -hmm. but there are also more ways to not have to do the work. Um, There's an app on the phone where they can take a picture of a problem and it'll work it out for them. What? 
Yeah. Yes, yes, I heard about that. Wow. Mm-hmm. And then you never know exactly how much the child knows because it's already built to them. Well, I mean, if we look at it, gosh, there's so many different perspectives on this because exactly. on the one hand, have we entered a place where we have created machines and programs so that we don't need to learn certain things. But then on the other hand, if you get into a career where you actually need to be able to use these things as building blocks, like I don't want my brain surgeon to be like, I'm just going to depend on Google and you know, like maybe we'll make it through. So there's kind of that, that sweet spot of making it part of our work ethic that yes, I can find a shortcut later, but I need to get it at some level before I do that. Yeah. Yeah. You know, that, that, that reminds me of um, when you all were growing up and uh, I think your brother wanted to get one of those uh, digital watches where it would say, okay, 145 or 115 or 130. And guess what your dad said? You would not be able to get a watch until you know what those things mean. What's, what's 145 or what's 359 until you know that, okay, we are talking about minutes to and after the hour, would you learn that? And I believe that's the same point you are making. At a later time, you can use those tools. Yeah, and I find a lot of kids don't, like today, they, they literally actually don't know how to do that because now that, that's just not as present. Um, like an analog. Yeah. Well, it requires more work. <laughs> and they're so used to instant gratification and not wanting to work hard mm-hmm. for anything. So yeah, how do you that handle so- that both as a parent and a teacher that there's a cultural shift to just make it easy for me? Um, That's a good question. In my class, I make them like write down a lot, show their work. And at some point I do allow them to use calculators because if I'm no longer grading your arithmetic and I want to know if you can do data analysis, I don't want that arithmetic to get in the way of your understanding of data analysis, but you still have to show your process and explain your thinking. Um, mm-hmm. And I'll try to tell them when they study hard for a test and they do well, I'm like, doesn't that feel better than if you cheated and you just got a 100 from cheating that you actually put that effort into it and saw the result. Yeah, yeah, that makes sense. But, you know, I I, I wonder, I suppose I'm looking at uh, the kids in your class or classes like yours 20 or let's, let's say even 10 years later when they have to compete with the cheaters of the world, how would, how would they be able to maneuver? Wow. Oh, geez. The best answer I have for that is, um, you know, I tell my students it all comes out in the wash. At some point, they will hit a brick wall if they are cheating and trying to get away, that there will be something that they're missing that they need to be able to do. Yeah. I would 100% agree with that. It's actually interesting. I was having a similar conversation just about people as professionals and um, how, you know, we are kind of in an age of everybody gets a trophy and everybody does a great job. Mm-hmm. Um, and then, yeah, everything we want it easily so we can just find something to assist us and make it easy. And what ends up happening is there's kind of this, um, 
Well, th- there's a certain intangible, like, like you said, Natalie, there's certain things that you just have to know how to do, uh, whether that is to master a class or to master a career field or a skill set. And if you either, like for some people, they cheated. And for other people, it just was, you know, we want everybody to, to get what they want. So, you know, have what you want, have the position that you want, have, have a, you know, whatever it is. And so if we're not requiring some sort of mastery somewhere, and often that's requiring it of ourselves, then we will hit a wall. We, yeah. we won't be yeah. able to, to move around when the answer is unclear and a computer can't generate right, it. Right. That is- and, and you know, this is a psychologist in me that's also saying that sometimes the struggle that we have is information that we are trying to open the wrong door. Hmm. Explain that we need to be, I mean, obviously there's basic things that we need to learn English, math, science, so that we can move about in the world. But when you get up to higher levels, like what's your college major? I mean, mom, there is a reason that I am not a medical doctor, (laughs) chemistry. And um, yeah, there's a reason that some things come to us naturally and then other things don't. Yes, you have to have a good work ethic, but to your point, Natalie, sometimes we're barking up the wrong tree for us. Mm-hmm. Well, and I tell my students, that's what makes the world go round. The fact that I'm not an English person, I'm a math person, and that their English teacher is not a math person, she's an English person, that we have to have those different skill sets in order for our society to work. Yeah, well said. Yeah, well said. Agreed. So can I pivot for just a minute? Because, um, Mom, you sent a really cool question that I think, gosh, I want to ask everybody. Okay. Um, So now that we are grownups, if you think back to your 15-year-old self, Natalie, and I knew that 15-year-old Natalie, (laughs) um, what... um, what would you tell her, like what kind of advice or um, point of view would you share with her? Oh gosh, I hate 15-year-old Natalie. Just say what you say that. That was probably the worst year of my life. Oh. Um, just don't compare. You know, like you can't compare yourself to others. Others are only showing you what they want you to see of them. Mm-hmm. You know, and just stick to it, stick to your beliefs, and it will turn out okay. Yeah, that's really good advice. Yeah. Um, I'm sorry, what? I I was going to ask you, what would you tell your 15-year-old self? Um, Gosh, so many things. I would say that um, it is okay to be who you are. You don't have to curate... um, who you are based on who you're with that the people that really are going to care about you and get you need to be able to see you. Otherwise you're spending um, a lot of time and energy either in the wrong kind of situations and and relationships or um, feeling like you have to hide. So just, 
just be fully who you are. Don't be so afraid of that. Nikhil, I think you and I had a very unique experience at 15. And the fact that we went to such a tiny school and we knew everything about everyone. And it was kind of like they were two groups and you had to pick one to conform with. Yes, absolutely. That is the experience. And I think at that time I didn't conform with either. And it was so painful. You know, I do recall that about you, actually, Natalie, that you seemed to be kind of in the middle where sometimes you were over here and sometimes you were, you know, kind of with the group that I was in. And I did not realize how painful that was for you. Yeah. I assumed that you were just comfortably moving back and forth. (laughs) Not at all. And I think, you know, for us, we had gone to school together from starting in sixth grade. And I left for a little while freshman year. I tried to go to a mm-hmm. different school and I came back and it was so different. There were new groups, there were new people. And I couldn't just fall right back into place where I had been because most of those people I had been with were no longer there. And the ones who were still there had already formed new relationships and new groups. Yeah. Yeah, and I think, I mean... Some of this, I think, is natural to being 15 and being in high school. But gosh, don't we torture ourselves so much? We do. But I believe at that time, 15 is really the word. You can't see beyond 15. You want to fit in. And I think that's where the problem comes in. That's where I think that, you know, support is very important. But at 15, you feel as though nobody, and especially your parents, they just, <laughs> they don't understand. They were never 15. But yeah, we all go through the same thing because um, I think my 15-year-old self was very, very, very insecure. And what I would tell my, my 15-year-old self if I had the opportunity was, no, 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 just wait a minute. Your friends are going to be there eventually. And what's going to happen is this too will pass. This mm-hmm. too will pass. But it, it is really tough because you begin, you become more conscious of the way you look, conscious of the way you feel, you want to fit into a different group and somehow the group maybe doesn't quite get you. And you ask yourself, where, where do I belong? How do I change myself so I can fit into this particular group? And you don't have to change yourself. You will grow into who you are, but you don't quite get it at 15. Not at all. The the irony of that is that I don't think people really start to move into that space until like their late 20s. Mm. Yeah. I mean, maybe even later, you know? And some people never move into it. Yeah. Yeah. It's a tough place to be, but it's interesting that I think most people seem to have that uh, a degree of uncertainty at that age because you are just coming into your own, but you're not quite you're not you're not there yet. You're just beginning the um, the process. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. Um. So, what else should we kind of cover from your perspective? Because you, um have talked with us a bit about, you know, being a teacher, what it was like to be, you know, a kid yourself. Oh, something that I don't think that we got a lot of detail about. You mentioned that you feel like you're practically teaching all the time now, that you have to do it from the house. Um, 
I have learned that I was not made to work from home. (laughs) My brain cannot shut off work and move into family life. I did remove my school email from my phone two nights ago, and that has helped a lot. Um, We at starting, I'm supposed to be available starting at 8 a.m. until 4 p.m. That's a long Um, day. That's a long day. My normal day at work is about 7 a.m. to 2.30 p.m., so it's different. Um, So if we have virtual meetings, those will be at 8 o'clock. And then we're available for office hours from 9 till 10.30. And then again from 2.30 to 4, where we should be answering emails. Um, And I get hundreds of them a day. Oh, my gosh. Uh, The time in between, we still have our planning period of, um, they've sent out a schedule with our actual periods and what time they should be. So if we do want to meet with students, we can. Um, But I find all I'm doing is answering emails and sending parents lists of missing work. Most parents have been so amazingly supportive and thankful a few, you can tell, are getting a little frustrated with their children and taking it out on me. But, um, yeah, all I'm doing really is answering emails and problem solving for students right now. Do you think that somehow parents are going to see the whole learning process as different when we return to the schools? In other words, do you see parents learning about, about the things that you experience as a teacher in the classroom? Yes. I, I mean, they say thank you, but... Um, we got had a parent say, oh, wow, I've learned so much about my son as a student over the past. <laughs> I'm waiting for the parent who told me her son just doesn't learn from my teaching style, who mm-hmm. has not done any work. I'm waiting for her to say, oh, OK, but she hasn't that yet. But I think some of them are starting to feel our pain. I know. I know I am, because what I realized for my daughter, um, you know, she, she She's so young. There's also something of like building a work ethic because this is the period where they're going from um, school was playtime and finger painting to no, you've actually got to go back through the material and then you need to self-monitor to determine, huh, did I understand what I read or heard or whatever before I answer questions or take a quiz? And that's not that's something that I think is learned. They do not come out of the womb being like, "Let me work hard." Um, right. And very often, I know that if you know, both my husband and I work full time, and I work some evenings, and so a lot of times I'm just like, "Did you get it done?" Okay, great. Moving on. But there's more to it that needs to be done. I don't know how I'm going to be as involved as I am now, but I know that I need a, a another level, another layer of that now that I've been home with her, kind of doing it um, on the front line with her. It's so hard because my oldest, I've never had to help much. Um, he has been mm. an amazing student. I knew one day in third grade when he came home crying and I said, what is wrong? And he said, I forgot my homework, mom. That I knew from that day forward, I would never have to worry about his schoolwork. My youngest is not a fan of schoolwork. So I've learned with him, as soon as he eats breakfast in the morning, we have to get his work done. 
because our window is small. Well, how are you doing that? Because I'm imagining your work day eight to four mm. with, uh, you know, hundreds of emails and, and meetings. And how are you getting your youngest through his curriculum? Well, he didn't have a spring break last week. Um, <laughs> I made, uh. I didn't tell him that there was anything called spring break and we caught up on his work then. Thankfully, the work now is easier than it was before spring break. It was a lot then. Um, and I don't know what to expect from a first grader. I don't know what good work looks like. Mm-hmm. So um, I've just been motivating him this week and praising him when he does a good job on something and gets his work done without complaining. So we're going to paint wrong later today as his reward for the week. Oh, that's nice. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, It's so hard to figure it out because yeah, I don't want to be one of those parents. It's like, I'm doing it for you because I'm not going back to elementary school. Been there, done that. But at the same time, there are certain things in trying, trying to make sure that she takes certain lessons on board that I'm like, um, that could warrant a reread or two or three and open a dictionary, please. Um, that a teacher won't do because that's not their job. That students should be developing those skills. You know what I mean? Yeah. What grade is she in? Second. Wow, that sounds so mature compared to my first grader. <laughs> oh no, that's that's me being like, okay, let's. <laughs> you need to like reread. But now that we're six weeks in, she's starting to do that okay. with not as much complaining, and there's a lot of pride when she's like. I caught this mistake, mommy. And I'm like, yes. All this time at home, I think by the time we get to third grade, we're going to be on board. And she was telling me, am I going to get to go to third grade? Because I think I'm ready. And these are the things that I want to learn. And so um, it's a different experience now that we've been actually actively engaged in the educational process together. So parent involvement is key. It's true. It's hard, but it's true. Yeah. But uh, but also, you you're, you just raised something about um, going up to the next grade. What is the decision, uh, Natalie, in your school about children going up to the next grade when they return to school next year? Um, are they going to be allowed to remain or to, or, or to stay back for one year? No, all children are automatically being promoted unless there were major issues before all of this. Um. Mm-hmm. You know, our state superintendent said this week that um, just to talk with the previous year's teachers and have that open communication about what you didn't get to with the students. Now, for me, I'm a transitional year. All of my students have are coming from different elementary schools, so I'm not too sure how that's going to play out. Sadly, we have all the okay. testing, and I hope maybe they'll cut back on the testing this coming year. And that would give us a lot of time to catch up and a lot less pressure to constantly review items for test taking. And I could yeah, ask you yeah. a million questions about that because I feel like evaluation is so important in terms of learning or knowing what children have learned and where they're struggling. But I also really feel like sometimes you guys are raked over the coals based on testing. So it's like, what's the sweet spot? Well, we test way too much. Um, We do benchmark tests three times a year, and those are three or four days of testing where um, 
our schedule's all messed up. We don't really teach much after that on those days. We have measures of academic progress twice a year. So that's four more days of testing. And then our state standardized testing is about six days of testing. Oh my gosh. So those are all days of instruction that's lost. So how do you make up for those days that are lost? You don't. (laughs) You just try to, you know, compact some lessons and push some things Mm. together and know that I'm probably not going to teach everything that I'm supposed to teach in one year. Gosh. Okay. I just don't, I don't know a better way. It's weird for me being a parent and kind of moving into it being more than like sight words and sounds and stuff and, and feeling like, gosh, there's a big philosophy behind this, but I want, I want the teachers to be able to provide the kind of instruction that they need to and want to, and the students to have a positive educational experience as well as to be children. And I don't feel like we have found a good way to do that. We just need to cut back on testing. Um, One hour or a few hours of a child's life in sixth grade does not tell us what they know about math. If they had a bad morning that morning, their dog died the night before, you know, they didn't Mm -hmm. sleep the night before. That's not an accurate snapshot of what they know. What would you suggest, though? Because I, I agree with you that testing doesn't necessarily, um, is not necessarily a good form or an accurate um, measure of how much a student learns or knows. So what, would, what other suggestions are there? You know, um, I don't know if in your state they do it, but we have a test called Measures of Academic Pro- Progress, which is MAP. Mm-hmm. And I really like that one. We test them at the beginning of the year, and it gives us, what they should know and what they should be ready to learn. Mm-hmm. And then we test them at the end of the year so we can see growth through the year. And I feel uh, like that one's a lot more accurate than our state test. We have that for the little kiddos, like K through two. I don't know if we have something comparable for the, um, you know, kind of older grades. Um, because I know that like it, you know, it's awful for a lot of the kids when we get to the state tests, like they're anxious, they get sick. Like it's just terrible. So I don't make a big deal out of it with my own children. I don't make a huge deal out of it with my students. I just teach them like, I feel like I need to be teaching them. Yes. I do sneak in test taking skills here and there, but um, I don't stress myself out over it. That's so good. I'm glad to hear that. Yes. Gets the students nervous. Exactly. And to me, I feel like sometimes they're more to judge me than they are to judge the students. Hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Well, ladies, I am keenly aware of the time. And I know that you've each carved out um, time on a on a Saturday afternoon. And so what I wonder, is there anything else that you would want to share with us, our listeners, um, you know, Natalie, about kind of just your perspective on things, because we've talked about school, we've talked about kids, we've talked about what um, we would tell our, our younger selves. Um, anything else that you would want to add? Um, just for the time right now, I think making sure your kids are okay is probably more important than worrying about their academics, you know, Help them, make sure they're getting stuff done, but just support them and love them and 
take the time to teach them the things that you don't have time for during the school year, like playing board games and going for nature walks. I love that. Yeah. Remember that they're people, not a set of tasks. Yeah. (laughs) They're little people. Well, thank you both so much um, for, you know, taking time to record this podcast this afternoon. I, I feel like I learned a lot of stuff that I didn't know. So thank you to Natalie House. Yes, thank you, Natalie. You're it was welcome. great catching up with you again. I'm so <laughs> flattered and ask me again. Oh, yes. Okay. See, we will have a repeat guest. <laughs> yes. I'll be happy you to be your different. favorite. <laughs> And Dr. Rogers, it was so good to hear you and speak with you. Yes, it it was really good. When Nikhil said Natalie, I said, oh my gosh, because I remember you. And I kept thinking, it's been so many years. It has. You were a good group of kids, though. You really were. <laughs> I enjoyed that. <laughs> a huge thank you to Mrs. Natalie House for coming on the podcast and for being our first guest. I thought it was interesting to learn more about the perspective of a teacher who had to go through a sudden school shutdown and reopening in a virtual environment. Not only that, but what it's like to juggle online teaching while also having to navigate school for her own school-aged children. We have so much more in store for you this season. An engineer, a researcher, some physicians, and a priest, all telling us about their lives and how the pandemic has affected them, the way they live, and those in their community. I hope you'll join us for another episode. If you enjoyed the show, please be sure to rate and subscribe to At The Same Time on whatever platform you use to get your podcasts. That way, you won't miss a single episode. We'd love for you to connect with us online. Our website is sametimepod.fireside.fm. You can also follow us on Twitter, at sametimepod. Music by Purple Planet. Copyright 2020 by Nikhil Rogers Wood, PhD, and Elsa Rogers, PhD.